Hello, and welcome to the Podcast of Power, a She-Ra and the Princesses of Power companion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nero. And I'm the other host, Jane. And today, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 6, which is entitled Light Spinner. Yes. One of, I would say, the most important episodes in the whole series, frankly, it's... And it goes quite in depth into Shadow Weaver, her past, her present, and uh, probably her future. But we'll we'll talk about that after the spoiler zone. You know us; we love to talk about Shadow Weaver. We talk about her all the time, whenever she's relevant, and it's because she is such a fascinating character. And this only deepens her complexity. This episode. Yeah, really really lets it stew and kind of develop those deep flavors. Right, so this is going to be a big one, so let's all strap in, let's all get comfortable, you know, get get some, some coffee or something, because we're going to be talking, talking Shadow Weaver. Yes, and uh, we'll, we'll start out just talking about um, some of the general, like, episode-related stuff. Like, uh, for example, we, we uh, start out... And we get a, a fun look at Shadow Weaver's uh, design when she wasn't Shadow Weaver at all and was Light Spinner. And she's, she's, very, she's very much an elf, like extremely elfer. She, is a, she really looks like a classic D&D wizard. She's got the robe. She's, like, she's wearing this veil. Um, it's interesting that even back then she was, still had a face covering. You know, masks are a big part of Shadow Weaver's character throughout the whole show. And even back when she was supposedly, you know, the the good and just light spinner, there were still things she was hiding. Yeah, exactly. I I like the I like the visuals of it, right? Where she has she has her mask, uh, really only covering half of her face here, and you know, it's it's kind of belying uh, the the fact that she keeps a lot of what's going on internally fairly hidden from the people around her, and in particular Micah, who uh, looks very much up to Light Spinner as the uh, most powerful sorcerer uh, in the world, and also just this this truly uh, larger than life like mentor figure. Yeah, we meet Micah finally after him. You know, he's been talked up over the over the past season and a half. Obviously, he is not King Micah currently. He's still, like, I don't know, 13 or whatever. Like, he's just, he's still a student at uh, Mysticor. I believe in the in the first Mysticor episode, Cassis Bella remarks that Glimmer looks a lot like her dad. And uh, now that we're seeing her dad at a younger age, uh, she was right. Yeah, no, she was quite right. Uh, there's a lot of Glimmer similarities um, in Micah's design. And also just his, like, general demeanor. He's very energetic. He's very like pragmatic. Like he's um, in the episode, right? Like uh, one of the central conflicts, of course, is what to do about the horde. And Micah is a hundred percent in in Light Spinner's corner here. Like he agrees there has to be something done right now. We can't sit around and hope the princesses will take care of everything. It's you know this is a big deal, and we have to go and and attack the problem head-on like a very very glimmer attitude to have frankly 
Yes. Uh, before we get too deep into the Mysticore flashback, we should also talk about the general structure of this episode because it is a little bit eclectic and, and fast-paced. So most of it is this flashback Shadow Weaver is having while she's in her cell. But we also cut around a lot to what Catra is doing. Um, and at the very end, we see what the Best Friend Squad has been up to this whole time. The, the Mysticore part is the main focus, obviously, but it is by no means the most important part of this episode. There are many things that happen in this episode that we're going to be talking about. So let's start uh, Let's start small and work our way up. Let's start with Hordak and Entrapta here. Yes. So Hordak and Entrapta have, you know, been been working together for uh, for a grip now. And they they really they really settled into kind of a thing here, right? Like uh, Hordak is completely comfortable with Entrapta being in the room and working, for example, while he's having his unarmored body taken care of by these robots and like having his armor applied, which uh, incidentally uh, fuck up in the middle of him getting his armor applied. Like he did a bad job on his Tony Stark armor assembly machine. This is the first uh, appearance of, of, you know, we've seen Hordak being worked on by machines in the past. I think in his first scene, he comes out of the shadows after these like robotic arms are doing something, but we can't see what it is. Uh, We finally see what they do. And it's that Hordak's body appears to be, it doesn't, like, it's bad. He's got these huge holes in his arms, you know, where, you know, where flesh should be. But it's like, there's no flesh in the middle of his arms. It just goes like, it's just a hole right there. He's got these weird splotches. It's a bad situation. Honestly, they kind of almost look like burn marks. Like, it seems like he's, he's seen some kind of physical uh situation in his past that his weird snaky armor uh takes care of we we don't learn much about that yet just that it is his situation um and yeah there's a there's a scene after uh, catra is sent away where hordak and entrapta are talking and she's just like perched on the arm of his throne and he's listening very intently um that really shows how their dynamic has evolved and how used to her presence Hordak has gotten and how like valuable he sees uh her work yeah like I I think it it really starts to speak to kind of the massive gulf in opinion that Hordak has for his two lieutenants here like Entrapta is extraordinarily trusted more trusted than maybe he's ever trusted anyone before and like she can just be in the room and doing whatever she wants while he's even having like his him at his most vulnerable. He's not hiding himself or getting angry about her being present. But as soon as Catcher walks in the room, of course, uh, that changes and he gets very mad very quickly at the idea that she would pop in while he is still getting his his body fixed up. And he's he's of course threatening her again with the suffocation rhombus. He has no interest in her desire to keep Shadow Weaver around so that she can be questioned. And while his reasoning, being that, of course, she's a massive liability, uh, is completely sound, like, frankly, she is a massive liability, at the same time, you can't help but feel if Entrapta was the one making this request for whatever reason, he probably would give it a lot more thought than the speed at which he dismisses Catra. 
That brings us to the sort of second point on our journey here. Um, Catra's whole situation. Because what Hordak does in this episode is basically put her on a time limit. Because he says, we're going to send Shadow Weaver to Beast Island. Which I believe we've heard before is the... You know, it, it is the, the place where the, the Horde sends the, the people it doesn't want to deal with off to die, basically. No one survives Beast Island. No one writes from Beast Island. It's a death sentence. Um, and Catra is desperate for Shadow Weaver to figure out some way to not, you know, do some information she can give where she won't get sent off to Beast Island. Uh, not all of that is necessarily born out of a tactical mind, born out of someone who's trying to get information out of a prisoner. No, yeah, exactly. And because the thing you have to remember, right, is what what actually did Shadow Weaver even do to end up in this position, right? Like she technically betrayed the Horde, but she didn't betray the Horde in service of anyone. She wasn't in contact with anyone. All she did was she was trying to defend the Black Garnet from being tampered with, right? So she doesn't actually have any information to give. She doesn't have anything tactical to tell anyone. She hasn't done anything against the Horde really at all, other than kind of flipping out at the idea of her position being threatened. So the the, the excuse that Catra gives of wanting to get useful information out of her, it doesn't quite hold water because there's nothing for her to give. Uh, no, instead, Catra has a little bit more of a sentimental reason to keep her around. I think quite a lot of it um, has to do with her feelings towards Shadow Weaver as kind of a parental figure. She's working through a lot of complicated emotions over the course of this episode. Um, as so- Basically, as soon as um, Hordak says he's going to send her to Beast Island she uh things start to crumble because before she's she's very much you know oh i'm i'm bringing you your meals because i like seeing you in chains you know get bent i won um however as soon as reality sets in that oh he's just gonna like send her off to saint helena um basically she is she goes into overtime and she has to sort of think about well why do i really want to keep her around and there's no real easy answer other than that it's complicated. It's very complicated. Like, Scorpia at one point uh, actually finds her out on the catwalks as per the usual. Um, catwalks, which, by the way, were not exactly intended for a giant scorpion woman to walk on. They kind of don't uh, survive very well. But, um, you know, she ends up just more or less asking Katra, like, what possible reason do you have to keep her around even it's not like either of you particularly got along it's not like either of you it's it's not like you can glean any information from this really and you know she's like i thought you always hated her and all catra can say is it's complicated and run away because she can't she's not willing to actually say out loud that the reason that she wants to keep Shadow Weaver around is because she's functionally her mom, and as bad as she's been treated by her mom, she wants her around. She wants her to be in her life. She wants her to approve of her and, you know, finally, more than anything, admit that she was wrong. 
Let's put a pin in that. We'll get back around to that, don't you worry. But before we do that, let's hit the actual flashback here, um, which is like the next the next tier up. The last scene is the most important thing in the episode, I think. So we'll finish on that. Um, this flashback is Shadow Weaver's origin story. It's how she went from Light Weaver to, or excuse me, Light Spinner to Shadow Weaver. Um, and it turns out what happened was that she just did the same thing she always does. She found someone bright-eyed and talented and convinced them that her ambitions were also their ambitions and tried to use them to, you know, better her own position and gain power. And it backfired spectacularly because she performed a cursed spell that made her into a magical parasite. Yeah, so this is the, this is the thing about Light Spinner, right? Is what I particularly like about sort of the way that she's handled is that she has this stark turn to the dark side and, I, you know, quite literally a turn to the dark side, but it's also not necessarily like a good character turning bad. She always had this amount of darkness in her which again the the whole mass situation is pretty representative of um but but one of the things uh about that right is she has like you said she has her own internal ambitions that she is gunning for you know she wants power she wants as much power as possible and her reasons for this are complicated right she obviously has a lot of baggage about being feeling weak and feeling condescended to and feeling like nobody takes her seriously but she also just wants to feel strong um but she also has her pragmatic reasons you know the horde is at the doorstep the horde is coming and somebody needs to do something about it to take charge of the situation but again, it's kind of means to an end for her. Like, it's all layers of justification. She has that, her, her desire and her, her lust for power, or whatever, but while she's light spinner, all of it's kind of couched, I think even internally for her, by this sort of veil of morality. You know, I want all of this unlimited power, but, you know, of course, in service of the realm. You know, I want to protect people you know obviously i want to manipulate micah for my own ends but only because i think that he's so strong and he can handle all of the power and and whatnot like she couches her her ambition in these moral terms up until the moment that she doesn't anymore so yeah like i would not you know light spinner when she is light spinner do not mistake uh dear listener I'm not saying she is the same person that she is now. However, the signs are here. They're all here. Uh, particularly, I think of the scene where she's trying to draw a sigil and Micah like helps finish it and, and properly like create it. And she kind of flips out on him and like yells, who else is teaching you? Like, how could you do that without me teaching you that? Like this flare of jealousy out of nowhere. And just like, yeah, she's far more, you know, personable and and friendly with Micah. You know, it's, it's a genuinely, uh, like, Micah thinks she's great. She, I don't know, is using him, but also seems to like him. Like, 
it is not quite as bad as her um relationships with Adora and Catra, but the, the this is the foundation of what she would become and this spell of obtainment and the fact that the mystical council just wouldn't listen to her is kind of what gives her the excuse to go over that edge to step over that line and join the horde exactly exactly like you might think okay why why on earth would she join the horde if the reason that she did the spell of obtainment like presumably was to get the power to fight the horde right but largely a lot of the reason she did that wasn't just we need to defend the realm but you know even beyond her own ambition like a significant portion of that was she wanted to be listened to she wanted to have the respect of the council of her peers um, because it seems that they never really fully trusted her they never really fully accepted her as one of their own she was always kind of on the outside and she really thought that this was the opportunity for her to finally gain their trust to finally be like yes i'm going to i'm going to save etheria and everyone who ever wronged me and thought that i was incompetent or or not trustworthy is going to idolize me and it didn't happen and this this is i think one of the primary things that really sets her off to go to the horde because I, and, and I think the, the really, the final thing that does it, right, because I don't think that by itself was quite enough to push her over the edge. The final thing that does it, I think, is Micah's refusal to continue the spell. Like, when, when he stops and he uh, kind of retreats to where the, um, the council has kind of showed up in the room, in her mind, that was a betrayal. She was just betrayed by Micah. And that was kind of, I think, for her, like, the final straw, this this talented young man who she trusted above everyone else enough that she was willing to do this with, right? Like, there, of course, was her very blatant manipulation of him to her own ends, but I think, as well, she had, like, a layer of trust with him because she had confided in him things that she hadn't confided in anyone else. So you get kind of this like weird parental interaction between the two of them particularly in the hallway scene after the council like rebukes her or whatever where you kind of get her venting to micah and you get this kind of parent treating the child as the parent situation if you get what i'm saying it's 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 interesting it's an interesting dynamic that they have going on and i think that yeah him deciding not to continue the spell of obtainment and kind of letting her get eaten by the like cthulhu monster and turn into shadow weaver i think that was kind of the final the final bit that drove her to say you know what screw all of you i'm i'm gonna go where i think my talents will be appreciated let's talk let's talk about the spell of obtainment scene because it's completely off the rails um from start to finish so it's clear as soon as this whatever appears that Neither of them knew this was going to happen for whatever reason. Obviously, the spell of attainment is not something that is probably very well recorded, as it is a kind of a forbidden art, it seems. So I guess Lightspinner didn't know that using it would summon a hell spawn demon. Yeah, if you've seen uh, critically acclaimed anime, uh, Full Metal Alchemist, uh, it looks like that. You know when you open the door? It looks like that. kind of is like a Gate of Truth situation. Um... 
it's yeah because what happens is well, yeah like you said she blames micah for leaving and not completing the spell he's a 13 year old kid who just summoned some kind of heinous dark magic that is like warping reality and trying to hurt them but of course shadow weaver ha- is and always has been extremely petty and extremely selfish like she doesn't do anything if it's not for her own gain and will often go behind the backs of her authorities to do things for her own gain we saw that all throughout season one when she was completely focused on getting adora back at the expense of everything else and here she is going ahead with this dangerous spell even at the warnings of all of her fellow council members um and she gets she gets got for it so like she gets grabbed by the ghoulies and comes out as the the shadow weaver we all know and love today except we get to see more of her face this time we do get to see more of her face this time and it turns out that when a bunch of shadow hands and shadow eyeballs pull you up into a cloud of darkness and then kind of knock you around a bit it messes your face up pretty bad her eyes are like shattered like her her irises are shattered um her face is covered in these horrible deep scars and she's trying to cover her face fairly well as well as well as she can with the remains of her little veil mask but it doesn't work very well um yeah it seems to have messed her up yeah and the next the next thing that happens uh is that she kills three people yeah so she she immediately so the council has come in the room as we said and and micah's kind of gone over to where they are and you know they're like oh what how could you have done this it's evil dark magic shadow weavers like bite me and immediately blasts two of them so hard that they go off screen in one frame so they're pretty dead um and then the head of the council gets eaten by an orb she absorbs him like a power-up essentially as she is a magical parasite, this is apparently something she can do. She's quite scary in this scene. Yeah, like, when 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 we say absorbed and eaten here, what we mean is he very... He, she grabs his head in an orb of darkness, and his whole body very slowly gets consumed by it, like, head first, until he is gone. Yeah, that is dead he's super dead extremely not alive and she like grabs the orb and absorbs it so like yeah he, he he's just like a power up um and then she has this moment uh you know like she she's looming over micah just this this horrible shade of, of twisted magic and he's like light spinner please and all she does is gently touch his hair and then uh vanishes yeah, she she really loves doing the doing the face touch, doesn't she? Put a pin in that uh, as well. Let's put another pin in that. We got a few pins this episode. Make a nice little pin board here. It'll, it'll all come together at the end. Don't you worry. Then we we end with her like showing up to the horde. She looks sick as hell in this scene, if I'm being honest. Oh no, yeah, like she looks incredibly intimidating. She's like like it, it opens up at night. There's like street lights in this this horde street, 
and she's just emerging from the shadows behind them and all of them are going out one by one and these guards these like piddly little guards just are like oh who goes there what's the password and she just grabs one and absolutely murks him and the other one just drops uh their weapon and she says i'd like to speak to your manager and that's how she joined the horde yes that's how she joined the horde she said i'd like to speak to your manager she walked into hordak's office and said hey listen let me help you or presumably she's probably like let me help you or i'll kill you right now and of course um at the time being that she just absorbed like the head of the magic academy she probably could have so i think it's it's probably time to talk about the end of this episode eh probably probably time to talk about it so earlier in the episode shadow weaver and katra are are having a fun conversation and you know katra just asks her right she says um why well no for first what happens right is is shadow weaver asks katra you know why are you hand delivering these meals to me you see surely you have more important things to do surely there's there's more for you to do with your time as a hordax right hand but katra doesn't really have an answer to that other than you know oh i like seeing you imprisoned yeah, and then we sort of move into the the scene that I always talk about. Uh, not I can't forget because it's a lot because they're they're in the situation, they're in the cell alone, and the the question finally arises: Why did you treat me like that? Which is a question that has been hanging over the pair of them the entire show thus far, and will continue to hang over them in the future. Shadow Weaver's answer is interesting. It is, we always say it's hard to tell how genuine she's being at any given time, uh, given the character that she is. Yes. But manipulation, good manipulators will always use some truth, half the truth. It can't all just be lies. Or else it'll, you, you find one crack and it all just completely falls apart. So what she basically says here is, like I treated you like that because you, you remind me of myself. That you were, you were always the weaker one. You always had to fight for every every ounce of 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 ground, or for every every inch of ground here, just like I had to. And like it's not a good reason, but it is a reason. It is this is a big moment because it's. It is, it, is, it is multiple layers, right? Because Shadow Weaver knows exactly what Catra's going through, because it's what she went through. It's losing Hordak's favor to someone more useful. And she is trying... It is... It's so much. It's, it's so much. Like, I, I think about one of the things that she says very specifically when she reveals to Catra that, you know, she, she sees herself in her, right? She's like, I had to fight for everything I've ever gotten. Why should you get any different? You know, she's, as as she always is, spiteful and jealous of all of the people underneath of her. She, she wants them to be every ounce as miserable as she is at any given moment. She cannot stand the idea of them having anything that she doesn't and that's like that's a big thing and i think 
honestly, one of the things that she doesn't say in this conversation, and something I think that absolutely is part of it, is an aspect of that jealousy where she can, or at least attempted to connect with Adora, but of course she would never ever connect with Adora in the same way that that Catra did. You know, like she wanted Adora to idolize her and you know look up to her and everything, but Adora always had so put so much more importance on her relationship with Catra than she did with. Shadow Weaver, you know, and she, of course, I think felt quite jealous of that as well because she wants to be the center of attention. She wants to be the matriarch of the situation and she can't really stand the idea of anyone else having any amount of that. And let's let's not forget Catra's side of this because it's equally as important here. Because after after Shadow Weaver says what she says, they're like, oh, why should it be any different for you? Uh, Catra comes out like, I was just, I was a child. Like, what are you talking about? What could I have possibly done to deserve that? And the answer is nothing. Shadow Weaver is just spiteful and selfish and jealous of everyone and everything around her. And yet, there is... Catra is someone as we've talked about in the past who longs for like acceptance even if she can't say it or admit it to herself even if she doesn't want to admit it this whole the reason she's feeling this is because she feels like she's getting pushed out by hordak you know she works so hard to get into this position and then as soon as she does someone comes along and usurps it uh from her in her view and she falls back on Shadow Weaver as the uncomfortable yet the familiar. And like there's the, the, this uh, the scene at the very end where Shadow Weaver shifts into a, a, a much a much softer tone. And like uh, she, mm, there's a frame of this show that I think about very frequently. I brought it up before, so she is. Shadow Weaver is telling Catra, like, you, you need, you, I believe that you can go further than me. You just have to be smarter and stronger. Uh, and she, she, she grabs Cat, one of Catra's little tufts, like these little, these little baby tufts around her head, the lighter gray ones, and then like puts her hand on Catra's cheek, and Catra just sort of melts into it, which we have never ever seen before. We've never seen her react like that to anything. Uh, it's so much. It's so much. Catra is someone who has appeared extremely uncomfortable with physical contact by anyone. Even with Adora, the physical contact we saw between them was always sort of roughhousing. Her personal bubble is very important to her. But this moment that all just melts away and she you just see how desperately she needs something like that yeah and it is and then there's then after she walks away and like she's smiling and she like brushes the tuft of hair like <sighs> it's and then of course the prestige so earlier in the episode Shadow Weaver asked Catra to bring her her old Mysticore badge as, as a sort of keepsake for a tired old woman uh, and Catra 
rejected that seemingly. Um, however, as she is wont to do, uh, she's actually a huge softy and brought it anyway. It was not a keepsake. No. Well, I mean, it probably was a keepsake, but uh, it was also part of her plan. Yeah, so the uh, the moons are aligning tonight, and that badge is full of crystals, that uh, crystal powder that you can use to cast spells. And she draws a she draws a spell circle in her cell and escapes into the night. Before she does, however, we get one more flashback. So this is the moment that she met Adora as a baby. Um, she's working on the black garnet. She hears a baby crying and walks into Hordak's throne room, um, where he and a couple of his other force captains have this baby. And he's looking very frustrated. He's like, this, it, I, I, you know, I was kind of successful, but all I found was this stinky little bean. Take it, just take it out of, bring, get, get out of my sight, put it in the infirmary. But Shadowweaver takes one look at this baby and says, oh, this one's special. This one's powerful. Can I keep it? And Hordak says, go nuts. <laughs> he's like, go nuts, just get it out of here. I'm tired of listening to it cry. And, uh, yeah, as soon as she picks it up, it stops crying. Which is not necessarily a reaction I would have to looking at Shadow Weaver, but hey. Hey, listen, she's listen, she's a baby. So far, all she's seen is a scary blue frog man with spikes and Hordak. So that's true. Her uh, her life experience is very low. I guess compared to those two, Shadow Weaver is very pleasant to look at. And uh, yeah, so the thing she thinks of before she escapes is Adora, and she vanishes. And uh, Catcher comes back, and he's like, ready to, all right, I, I know, you know, I know it hasn't been long, but I'm ready to brainstorm some stuff. I want to help you get out of this situation. Uh, and Yeah, presumably really not long after, like, probably only, she probably, like, turned the corner and, like, stood around and had a moment for, like, 20 minutes and then came back. And I cannot stress enough, this is the happiest we've seen Catra since the first episode. Yes, this is the happiest she's been. It's it's a lot. Like, but it, get, it gets me so bad because it's like she just got more or less what she's wanted her whole life is like her mom functionally to care about her in any way like show affection and like to treat her good and suddenly she gets that for like the, the, the tiniest possible second and it's and that made her so happy like having any amount of positive attention because the thing is right Katra really wants attention and engagement she wants people to value her and validate her and be nice to her and she and she got it from the the one person she probably wanted it from the most in the world other than adora of course then it turns out that despite most of what she said i think at least being true once again it was all in service of shadow weaver's own ends it was manipulation a ruse and Catcher doesn't take it well. Yeah, she just kind of, you know, freaks out in the cell and just has a horrible time of it. 
Uh, the, I don't know. The best friend squad are decoding some messages. That's the end of the episode. Is it, that one? That part really isn't that important. No, yeah, it's like a minute long scene, but they figure out that the message says Serenia Portomara, and they're like, ah, better figure that one out, gang. I think th- I can't remember if there are any other episodes that have no Adora or uh, Bo in them. Um, I think there might be one that they aren't in, but it's hard for me to say. This is probably the least amount that the main characters are in any episode. And yeah, so that's that's the end of Light Spinner. It's the end of Light Spinner, and it is a strong episode. It's also an episode that just moves along at an incredibly brisk clip. Like, when the episode ended, I was like, oh my god, is it over already? Like, it literally felt like a 15-minute episode, frankly, because it's just like so much happens at you so quickly. Yeah, a lot happens in this episode. So before we get to questions and all that, there is something else I wanted to talk about regarding our, 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 we talk about Shadow Weaver a lot in this episode, um, or on this show rather, all the time. Yeah, Shadow Weaver is a, is a featured guest on the program. There is a phenomenon that I have noticed, and usually I think it's among younger circles of fans which makes sense however it is still a habit one needs to grow out of and sometimes people don't so when there is like a villainous character such as shadow weaver a character who has done terrible dreadful things there is a pattern of thought where you you one stops thinking of them as you know written characters trying to convey a part of a story that is being told and more like real people, which is never a way you want to view media. It's never a lens you want to view something through. Because things fall apart very quickly. Yeah. Like, one of one of the problems, right, ends up being that when you start thinking of written characters in the same way that you would think of actual like human people what you start doing is you start applying the same lens of morality to them that you would hold to a real person and of course by association you would also apply that same lens to people who associate with that person so you end up in this really strange situation where you have people who will moralize a lot about like willingly associating yourself with a written character which is a little bit weird yeah like this sort of thing flares up whenever a character like shadow weaver appears the one i remember was back in in 2014 on tumblr when hannibal was getting big there were posts going around like it's morally wrong to like hannibal lecter because he's an evil serial killer but like that's yeah, we know. He's had a lector. Yeah. He's he, he's not actually a serial killer. He's he's a character in a, in a book and a, in a TV show. Yeah, he's not an actual man. He's like a he's like a, a character. He's like he's trying to convey something. Someone is writing Hannibal Lecter. And so liking Hannibal Lecter doesn't mean you're bad or whatever. It just means that you find him really engaging and entertaining. Which, from what I understand of NBC's Hannibal, is very true about that version of Hannibal Lecter. Similarly, I would say Shadow Weaver is probably one of my favorite characters in this whole show. Because she is so multifaceted and also just, like, there's layers to her and none of them are really good. Like, she's one of the most 
well-realized sort of abuse metaphors I've seen in a show like this. Yeah, like, like that's that's the thing about her, right, is that she is directly and very bold, italicized, textually in-your-face and abusive parent, a very manipulative, abusive individual who treats her children like absolute garbage and manipulates everyone she can all to her own ends. And that's the thing, is that as a, as a person, that's horrible and you don't want to associate with someone like that. But because she's a character, right, it's one of those things where it's like she's been written to illustrate things that happen right she is like specifically a narrative tool not just to push the narrative of the show but also to illustrate like these real dynamics that occur in real life and i think on those grounds in particular she is an incredibly strong character she's a character that like works incredibly well she does exactly what she's designed to do she gets all of this information across really well uh she's she's acted spectacularly and she's also one of my favorite characters like she is a supremely hateable character but like again she is a character and there is again that that school of thought where it's like you can't say that you know you like shadow weaver because i because you you know would be condoning an abuser but it's like you're not you are appreciating an abuse metaphor for being effective and like getting information across that you know otherwise is is usually handled really badly and i think they they do a really good job of it in this in this uh in this show yeah let's be clear you're allowed to dislike shadow weaver if you like it's fine like she's not for everyone i get it but think about why you dislike her if you do Think about the reasons. Think about, like, turn your critical eye inward and say, well, what is it about this character that I'm bouncing off of? And perhaps it is just, like, personal taste. You don't like characters like that. That's fine. I get it. But, like, other times it could be, like we're saying, like, judging characters' morality based on real life. Remember, fiction exists to reflect and clarify the world around us. It is not the other way around. Fiction portrays emotional truths in ways that are very clear and and very concise which uh the real world is not uh for the most part the real world and real people are infinitely complex and very messy and like it's a lot you can't just map real people onto characters like this no yeah exactly um that being said there are two very very important caveats to this entire conversation we're having right now uh caveat number one obviously it is fine to be uncomfortable with light spinner especially if you're in a like you are also an abuse victim like obviously i i think that shadow weaver is like a really strong character and like i resonate with the experiences that she has put on other people um and for that and other reasons i find her like a very powerful character but like another person who's had similar experiences might have like a real problem with with seeing her and that's like completely uh that's completely valid to to feel that way i think we're we're kind of just trying to illustrate the idea that like there's a difference between having discomfort with a character and 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 deciding that people who can appreciate the writing of the character are morally wrong for doing so 
And then the second caveat that's just as important is that we're, we're, we're not taking this in a fiction doesn't affect reality situation either. Uh, you know, obviously fiction very much has a very large impact on the way people behave and the way people act. And it's, it's important to also realize that like, there's a difference between having a strong and fond appreciation for a character and understanding they're a good character and then idolizing that character for the actions they take. And those are two very different things. Yeah, they're very different things. Fiction affects reality. Reality affects fiction. Reality is not fiction is the other thing. That is the third. All three are true. Exactly, exactly. But um, anyway, we, we just we just wanted to kind of clear that one up a little bit here uh, before we move on to the question and answer segment. I'm putting away my soapbox. I'm sliding it back under the bed. Um, I'm sure I'll get it back out again sometime, probably around season five, episode five, which is, you know, normal regular episode. Nothing important happens in that one. Yeah, I'm sure nothing's going to happen in that. We've got questions we do isn't that exciting i am always excited um a couple of these i love getting questions especially when there's some good ones this time a couple of these are gonna be uh in the spoiler zone here so i think we'll start actually look at this i think three of these are gonna be in the spoiler zone so yeah yeah i think so are we are we doing we're doing one yeah, we're, we're, if you want to hear these up, these questions, go ahead and uh, uh, mosey on over to the spoiler zone. But we've got one here from an anonymous Curious Catcher user who asks, We see Baby Adora in this episode, but we never see Baby Catra. In your imagination, what would a Baby Catra scene look like? I know exactly what it is. Didn't, wait, didn't actually, um, didn't Noelle Stevenson like do like a, like a tweet about this at one point i think so wasn't she literally in like a cardboard box yes yeah she was literally in a cardboard box that was found like outside the horde and dora was just instantly enamored with katra and was like my friend now my friend now my friend um yeah that's exactly the image i had in my head it's a cardboard box left on the doorstep like of course it is. Like, yeah, Adora is, gets found by Hordak and brought home. Catra is just sort of tossed into the wind and ends up there. It's perfectly fitting. It really is. It really is. But with that, I'll end our pre-spoiler section. Boy, howdy, it's already almost an hour, isn't it? Yep, this is going to be a long one, especially because after we get to the spoiler zone, there's a lot more in-depth things to start talking about, plus three questions. So um, for those of you who are joining us, I uh, I hope you brought the popcorn. Yeah, uh, before we leave, remember, you can find us many places around the internet. You can find us on Twitter, at Podcast of Power. We post uh, question posts usually every Wednesday. You can go to our Curious Cat and reply to us on Twitter. If you have a longer question, you can send it to our email. We've been getting tons of emails. Uh, shout out to Sean Montgomery for uh, sending you know some stuff. They sent us a summary of a panel that uh, Noel Stevenson was on talking about stuff. Oh, that's quite exciting. So that'll be fun. That'll be fun to dig into at the end of the season. Um, but yeah, so and remember, we do do email recaps at the end of. Uh, every season of the show so you got something you want us to talk about send it in just just build up that backlog um you can find us over uh, at uh, potapower.tumblr.com 
nothing really goes on over there, unfortunately. Maybe I'll use it for something someday. Someday. Uh, and then finally, we uh, have a Patreon, of course, and that you can find us at patreon.com slash power. We have all sorts of fun bonus content over there. We've got the KipoCast and the OwlCast, where we watch Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts and the Owl House, respectively. Both extremely fun shows. Yeah, we just put up uh, the episode, I think, today. It was slightly delayed this week, um, where we look at the episodes where uh, Luce gets to magic school and whatnot, so that's pretty fun. Um, we also have some other bonus content that we do. We've done the fun, like, Shira personality quiz that the whole uh, crew took at one point. We did that. Um, we're planning on doing the Flame Princess book and and talking about that. Uh, we also have some stretch goals to start reviewing like lots of fan content and like aggregating that and saying what we think about it. Eventually, you know, maybe even doing a one shot of this like uh, hack of firebrands for like a tabletop Shira experience which should be pretty cool yeah and all of this can be yours for the low low price of three u.s dollars we are we are so close to hitting our first stretch goal of the of the fan work aggregate and of course if you're a, if you're a three dollar patron you can get shout outs in the episodes which i'll do right now thank you so much to our force captain tier patrons michael steinert tara stark tco murderbot Brennan Fitzgerald, David, Emma Grossman, Robert Harris, D the Shadow, and Danielle Dupont. Thank you very much. Thank you for the support, everybody. Uh, but with that, I think we're about ready to head on over. So for those of you who are joining us, we'll see you on the other side. Buckle up. an episode huh do we just start with the questions maybe yeah i don't i don't know how much shadow we should talk because we could talk about the rest of her arc in this episode and we just leave ourselves with nothing well i don't even know if that's true ah no i don't think so okay so like i think what we've i think what we've got like in the notes is probably what we should stick to as far as shadow weaver talk because that even by itself is just enough to to get honestly probably 45 minutes of content out but yeah, let's go ahead and start with these questions first, though, because some of them line up with our with our note outline here. Um, let's start with the one that isn't about Shadow Weaver. Um, so, after listening to the Whiteout recap and your thoughts on how Bo, Glimmer, Scorpia, and the other princesses probably know Catra and Adora have feelings for each other, I was wondering, does Catra realize she has feelings for Adora at this point in the series? We know Adora is too dumb, but does Catra know she loves Adora while also trying to kill Adora? Because this this is the interesting question. Because what Catra says at the end of season five is I love you, I always have. Yeah. Like this this is the thing, right? I think that there is a difference between not 
realizing that you have feelings for someone and repressing the fact that you have feelings for someone, right? Like Adora doesn't know. She is utterly oblivious to her own emotional state vis-a-vis her -vis good friend Katra. Katra, however, is a repression machine. All she, she, you know, you put an emotion in that girl and she'll have that boxed up and compartmentalized away before you can blink. She's repressing that all the time. All the time. She has to for what she does. Yeah, like, it's interesting. I don't, it, she is repressing it. I don't even know if she consciously knows it sometimes in the series. Like, it is, there's a lot that happens in this season in particular that we'll get to. Um, there are people out there, there are weaklings out there who, after the third season wrapped up, were questioning whether Catrador was going to happen or not. Fools. Every single one of them. True fools. Like... F foolish of you to question uh the machinations of this show utterly utterly utter buffoons um you, you let a little bit of apocalypse uh causing think that's not gonna that's not gonna happen no 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 but yeah it's uh it's i don't really have an answer i think she both knows and doesn't know i think well no she knows but she doesn't want to know exactly that's my feeling on it right is like she is aware of the fact that she loves Adora, but she will not allow herself to think about it for more than 0.01 seconds before she viciously stomps it back down uh, under the weight of either her ambitions or her anger or really anything she can grab off the shelf and use as a cudgel to beat it back down into where she doesn't have to look at it anymore. There's this incredible comic on, I, I see on Twitter sometimes. I, re I retweeted it. Uh, who knows where it is now, but... It's just, it's just cat. It's just various drawings of Catra, and one of them is just like her about to have emotions. Then she just slaps herself across the face and says, "Woo, close one." <laughs> yeah, essentially. That's it. Yeah, that's basically how it works for her, isn't it? That's that's all. That's all you need to know. That's Catra. Play like the studio audience laughter. <laughs> uh, next question. This one is Shadow Weaver related. Anonymous curious Catra user says, "I have a terrible memory. I think I already asked this." Uh, Shadow Weaver touches Catra's hair tufts while in the jail cell. Then she escapes after ma manipulating Catra. Catra cuts off her hair tufts in season four. Noelle says this is because Shadow Weaver touched her hair when manipulating her. In what ways do you think this betrayal changed Catra? To Catra, was the abandonment by Shadow Weaver worse than abandonment by Adora? We see she decides to pull the lever when realizing Shadow Weaver abandoned her for Adora. So first of all, you didn't send this before. This is new to me. Um, so unless everyone involved here has uh, Swiss hole memory, Swiss cheese memories, what's a Swiss hole memory? That's a great question. Let's put it aside. <laughs> put it aside. Can't think about it. Um, yeah, so Catra's uh, wardrobe change in season four is very interesting to me because... All of it is super meaningful. So yeah, first of all, she cuts off the tufts, which is like, not only are the tufts her baby fur, basically, like the, the tufts she had when she was a kitten that she's had her whole life, she cuts those off. They were also the tool that, that Shadow Weaver used in this instance, and probably many times in the past, to manipulate her. Because we know, we know Shadow Weaver loves to touch the hair. Yeah, she loves to touch the hair, touch the cheek, make sure that like... It's like that's like her primary like that's that's the nuclear option for her, right? That's the super manipulation 
like when she really needs to get someone to do something. If you want to hear us talk more about how touch is used to manipulate in the Horde, go back to our Shadows of Mysticore episode. We talk about it a lot there. Yes, and we'll probably talk about it more this episode, frankly. But yeah, like I, I actually, I, I love this, this, this bit, right? Where it is her removing the hair tufts is not just symbolic of her kind of her growing up in this very specific way like she had this like i want to call it like naivete right but i'm not sure that's the correct word for it it's this this attitude of she's kind of playing commander for a lot of this right like it's it's all in service of her getting validation and, and feeling wanted um, by the people who are important in her life, Adora, Shadow Weaver, Hordak, Scorpia, of course. But, like, she's not really acting like the commander of an army. Like, you know, she's not interested in looking at any of the paperwork. She's not interested in logistics. She's not interested in anything. She just wants to, like, she wants to win this situation so she can get her validation you know she can redeem her voucher for for free validation she's she's got her punch card but after this she grows up and stops thinking that way she really becomes kind of a much more cold and calculating person she starts to really actually fill the role that shadow weaver left behind and of course a big part of that is because this time shadow weaver really has left that behind you know up until this point she's been present still you know she's been in the building like she her her boots were still she was still wearing the boots to some extent and there's also of course the angle that you know this betrayal uh, by Shadow Weaver, this this massive betrayal is kind of what what pushes her over that edge, and I think that it actually was worse than the abandonment by Adora because, like, Katra had this competition with Adora for a lot of their lives for Shadow Weaver's attention and affection, right? And Adora being gone while devastating to Katra in her mind she this was also an opportunity you know suddenly she had the ability to finally get that recognition and attention and affection that she'd been denied her whole childhood and the realization here that not only is that never going to happen but the one time it did it was all just a ruse to use her one last time that completely changed her as a person this is maybe the biggest turning point for catra in the whole show pointing her in any given direction right second biggest the biggest turning point is saving glimmer on the velvet glove see i'm not sure i agree though because the thing is at that point she's already started turning a little bit towards the side of wanting to help Glimmer because at this point, right, the original horde is functionally dissolved and she's on this, uh, she's on the Velvet Glove in a very hostile environment that she is realizing more and more by the second is dramatically more hostile than she could ever imagine. And she has no hope of actually like integrating into this, this structure of command, you know, at that point she was 
already kind of looking for an out a little bit. Here, though, I think this ends up being the biggest turning point because this is what kind of turns her from being, like, still somewhat of a coaster, right? She's still kind of coasting along, just doing these little little plots of hers to try and, and win these individual battles, but not necessarily a war. Whereas, you know, after this, she really completely goes down down the bad path like she was she was on the sidewalk now she's just she is in a car going down the highway at about 95 miles an hour i suppose that's true yeah i was gonna say the 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 shadow weaver thing is less it is a turning point but it is also like a lock in of her path because she pulled the lever and she is following that road to its conclusion which is not good for her or anyone at all really no it's the worst possible decision for absolutely everyone on the whole planet frankly but uh well she'll find that out soon enough so our, our last question from an anonymous curious catra user shadow weaver wears a mask at all times catra also wears a mask at all times we see similarities between them as characters having a mask is another similarity catra willingly takes off her mask one time in season four to cry and also when she sleeps, uh, slash is having PTSD guilt dreams, and doesn't wear a mask as a child. Shadow Weaver only lets down her mask when being very vulnerable, like Catra was in Season 4, or when forced to take it off, just like Catra was in Season 5. Can you talk more about Catra's mask in particular? I haven't heard people talk about it before. So Catra's mask is something I think about a lot, because you're right, Anonymous Asker. I don't think people talk about it enough. It's very obvious. If you if you the mask is different than Shadow Weaver's obviously because Shadow Weaver's covers her whole face because that is who she is. She is always concealing her true motives and ambitions behind all of these layers of manipulation. Katra aspires to do that. However, she's not very good at actually hiding her emotions. And so her mask just kind of frames her face it is a it is a framework sort of that she she works herself around that she she operates around and and the mask is is present uh like this asker said you know we, we the first time she wears it is after the uh the the teenage segment of of the the flashback in promise where uh that there, there's that training montage so she's not wearing it in that i don't believe uh, she is wearing it the first time we see her in the series proper. The mask... So Shadow Weaver's mask. Let's talk a little bit about Shadow Weaver first. We've talked about her mask, right? She starts off, the mask is pristine. Catra cracks the mask at the end of season one. And that is how she is right now in season two. Her mask is cracked. The veil, the veil is starting to become lifted. Which is why there are these moments of truth slipping through in her, in her manipulations. This is why she's sharing these, these emotional statements with Catra. She, uh, she gets brought, she takes herself to Bright Moon. The mask is still cracked. She is still telling the truth to Adora and, uh, and, and, and the crew. Season four, the mask is fixed, and she's back right back to her old tricks with Glimmer. Back to the same old stuff she's doing all the time. Steering someone young and talented towards her own ambitions, using them as a tool. Except this time, it doesn't work as well, because uh, turns out Glimmer's ambitions... Uh, are, are even more powerful than her own. In season five, the mask that she willingly takes off her mask 
right at the very end before she explodes and sacrifices herself to save Catra and Adora. And that's the story of Shadow Weaver's Mask. It's and quite a story it is, really. Like, the masks really frame the characters' arcs, I think. They, they follow them the whole way through. And you get to have this very clear visual understanding of a character's internals through the mask as metaphor technique. And I do love the usage of it in this show. I would also consider, frankly, um, the hair tufts to kind of be part of Katra's mask, like part of her facade, really. Like, they they are also framing her face in this way, but like, they're, they're the contrast to the sort of like a circlet that she has you know that's it's the it's the contrast to it she has that framework of trying to be like shadow weaver to be the the one who hides her emotions but you know she's still a child like a bit you know she's still young she is still naive she still has like this this outlook this childlike outlook of things and she still places so much importance on her like emotional connection to these people in her lives. But of course, next season they get well, or in season four, they get removed. And, you know, you start to see her really start taking that that role more seriously. The mask, of course, in her design in season four is much more pronounced than it is previously as well. Yes, because she has slicked her hair back so that the, the mask is now not framed by the hair, but is framing her hair. And she is constantly smoothing her hair down in season four. Seasons one through three, it's always just a huge mess. Like, it's a big poof. It's all, all fluffy. Season four, she is putting forward a facade of professionalism and calmness at all times. But it's just that. It's a, it's a thin facade. And as it begins crumbling, she, she, the, the scene, of course, that the Asker is referring to is another one that I think about quite often, where she just, like, breaks down in the middle of the control room and just sobs uncontrollably after realizing that Scorpia is just gone and that she's not coming back. Like, that, that, is, that is the sort of the lowest of, uh, part of Catcher's arc right there. Either that or when Double Trouble completely eviscerates her with, a, like, a like a 55 hit combo double trouble does the emotional equivalent of the raging demon to her and it's it's quite a lot that that scene is that scene is so much and the the bit where she just the mask comes off in that scene it just drops to the ground is i i think about that shot all the time and let's end the the season five arc of the mask. Let's finish the story of Catra's mask because it is interesting. She starts with it on. She has it on the velvet glove. She is still trying to project this facade that she was in season four. But Horde Prime sees right through everything. Horde Prime sees all. Horde Prime knows all. And she quickly finds herself drowning in this new hierarchy. She can't. She can't stay above water. So instead, she rejects it. And does, like, the most impactful thing she can. She saves Glimmer to save Adora. And in doing so, is captured and, and chipped by Horde Prime, who takes away the mass. Because in his mind, she is now pure. She is now, 
like the perfect her perfect form she has no need of a mask she has nothing to hide from him she has nothing she can hide from him of course she is saved because there are things she can hide from there's always something you can hide from horde prime when she comes back with adora she no longer has the mask why is this you know you could say well she lost it on the ship that's not the no wrong incorrect Technically correct, but not the right reason. She doesn't have the mask anymore because she has made the commitment to be better, to be more open, and to be more vulnerable with Adora and her friends. Exactly. There's there's a scene in particular that really, really just super heavily just is on the nose about it. And it's during um, the, the scene when they're on the planet that they find... Uh, the, the planet they find... Um, um Mulog on the planet they find Mulog. I know on. that scene. It's so it's good a, because she's It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole show, frankly. She's just like trying to keep her emotions calm because of course she's trying to like calm down this giant animal, this giant freaky animal they don't know anything about. And she's she apologizes to Adora and she's like, Listen, I, I know I, I get angry. I'm trying to work on that. And Adora just, her eyes go huge, like, dinner plates. She's like, you are? Oh. And yeah, it's like, because Catra's being emotionally honest with herself, and that's, Milog is an extension of this, because Milog makes it so that she can't hide her emotions anymore, because Milog embodies her emotions in every way. Yeah, they their their connection is like empathic right not really telepathic but empathic and so yeah catcher's mask is very important and i'm glad this curious catcher user asked about it because i love talking about catcher's mask uh the technical last appearance of catcher's mask is in the season five she transformation where she takes all of the aspects of her friends into herself because she's uh, a shonen protagonist now which is very good yeah which which owns and is awesome and and also actually i would i would say in fact, has its own meaning because I think that in season five in particular, when she has the catcher mask on, she is hiding her own emotions a little bit more than she normally would um, because a lot of it is very confusing for her. And she's she's hiding them from herself just as much as she is from everyone else. And uh, you will note that in the heart part two, she does not have that mask on when the scene happens. You're so smart. <laughs> I just realized that. I was like, oh my god. We're all we're all learning new things every day. Yeah, it, it does seem like the show is good still. They sure put some thought into it, didn't they? They sure did. Alright, yeah. Do Let's see. Do we want to hit anything in our notes? What do we got here? Ah, uh, I mean, we got it, right? Let's see. Um, Let's talk about Micah. Let's talk about Micah because Micah is a very interesting aspect of Shadow Weaver's art. Oh, for sure. For sure. So Micah kind of gets the least amount of time to reckon with Shadow Weaver due to him being reintroduced so late in the series, which is like, I get it. You have, there's so little time and there's so many things you have to do. They do a little bit with it and it is interesting, but like, you know, I would love to see it extrapolated out. Her her dynamic with Castispella is kind of a, an extension of that. But Micah is the the chronologically probably the first person she sort of has this parasitic relationship with, right? He is the he is the Ur example, and who's the last one she has that kind of relationship with? Uh, well, it happens to be his daughter, which uh, you know. It's an interesting parallel because 
Micah doesn't go far enough in her eyes. Micah stops at the edge of the spell of obtainment. In her eyes, he's the reason she failed. Glimmer goes too far in her eyes. Glimmer ignores all of her warnings and goes ahead with the thing that Shadow Weaver had been telling her to do for the entire season. And then Shadow Weaver realized, oh no, I've I've really I've really screwed the pooch on this one. Yeah, really, really, uh, really fumbled that football, didn't you? So it's fascinating that they are they are the two bookends to this kind of aspect of Shadow Weaver's arc. She tries it again and again in season five. And it never really works because by this point, everyone's sick and tired of it. Everyone is completely done with her at that point. They just, they, she, she gets away with it just a little bit the very last time during failsafe, but it lasts for all of maybe 20 minutes um, because everyone's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> and Micah, you know, um, I don't want to talk too much about his future character because I want to talk about it when he shows up. I think he's a really fun character. He is. He's he's really good. I I also wish he got a lot more time in the show, but I understand why he didn't. There's so many things to juggle, and ultimately you have to decide what you're going to focus on if you don't want the show to become a giant, sprawling mess. <clears throat> Steven Universe. Yeah, naturally. Yeah, so Catra and Shadow Weaver, I think we've covered that fairly well. Do we want to talk about the end of Shadow Weaver, or do we want to save it? Ah. Uh... You know what? No, there is something I remembered, of course. We need to talk about... So, this is kind of the second part of the thing I was talking about last episode with Hordak. This show, one of the main things this show is concerned about is redemption, what it is, who deserves it, and how one can achieve it. We talked about Hordak and how his arc is, is very different because no one is obligated to forgive him, and yet... It is he, he is in a, st- a place to be better and work at it and is now willing to do so. When I hear people say that they're annoyed that Shadow Weaver got a redemption arc, I question if we watched the same show. Yeah, because, like, I would not call what she got a redemption arc. Like, I, I don't think anyone redeemed her in any way. Like, she got a moment at the very end where she got to play the hero, but I don't think that lionized her. Like, I think there's a really important distinction between a character getting to have a hero moment and that meaning that the show has lionized her and made her out to be a hero. Right. Like, having a heroic moment yeah, having a heroic moment and being a hero are two very different things. And yet again, here we come to parallels. In uh, the Portal episode, Angela's basically death is very similar to Shadow Weaver's. And she is lionized for it. She is held up. She gets a statue made of her. There's a whole episode. Yeah, she is essentially kind of like, well, she she is the angel of the of of the rebellion, right? She she becomes kind of their patron saint in a way. Shadow Weaver dies, basically alone, under hundreds of thousands of miles underground, with the only two people left on this planet who care about her in, at all. And the, we, we are sort of trained for media to see her, a heroic sacrifice as a redemptive action. But here's the thing. I think this show is smart about what it thinks of redemption. And I think it genuinely believes that Shadow Weaver is an irredeemable character. Yeah, I, I, th- I agree 100%. I think that Shadow Weaver is a totally irredeemable character. And I think very specifically, the thing that cements it for me 
like the textual element because obviously there is a very heavy like implication and theming and subtextual element that explains why this is not while this while this is a heroic sacrifice it is not a hero moment the line that is very textual that does cement it is the bit where she turns to Katra is the last thing she will ever say to a human being in her life she could say she could say anything she could say, you know, I always cared about you, you know, you know, good luck, a anything. She says and chooses to say, you're welcome. Maybe the most spiteful thing she possibly could have said, frankly. And that, I think, really illustrates exactly what her emotions were during that scene. It was her playing the hero, but not being the hero. It's truly the most shadow weaver thing that could ever have happened yeah the last thing she says you're welcome like for what like there's so many things that she's saying you're welcome for right but none of them matter shadow weaver the best shadow weaver did do one truly selfless thing at the end of her life and it's the only good thing she could have done at that point and that is removing herself from catra and adora's life permanently forever what shadow weaver's death isn't a redemption it's catharsis like she is not being uplifted by anyone let alone you know catra and adora who are the only ones to witness it no this is she is being excised from their life in the most explosive and dramatic way possible which allows them to move past her because up until that point, she was always still there. She was always, as soon as they got back to Etheria, she was all she was back, doing her old stuff, over their shoulders, manipulating them. She's not there anymore. There's not even a ghost of her left. There's literally not a trace of her left except her shattered mask. That is it. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the more powerful things in the show, I think. And I think it's really important to understand that, yeah, this is like... This is this is her functionally being excised from the lives of the characters that she's been a parasite on this entire time. And that, you know, it's not it's definitely not a redemption as much as it is just an it's it's an acknowledgement of her finally doing the one really singular good thing she ever did in her whole life. Like we said with Hordak, it's not a proper redemption. It, with Hordak, it is an opportunity to work towards it. And whether or not people can forgive him is up to them. But the point is that he can have a life outside of Horde Prime. That's why that moment comes with Adora burning Horde Prime away. And him, like, just, just the, that moment of clarity. Similarly here, it is, it, is, it is also fire that gets rid of every trace of Shadow Weaver. And the third try, the third uh, point of this redemption triforce is going to be coming a bit later. We're not going to talk about Catra yet because there's a whole season about that. Yes, yeah, there's, there's a whole season for it, but uh, we'll we'll get there. But it is the most important arc of the show. It is it is the central like yeah theme. It's the central theme of the show is Catra's redemption and what it means and why it happens. A lot of people say, you know, Zuko's redemption arc is the best in any show. Uh, I don't think that's true anymore. 
No, I don't think it is either. Like, and especially because you have to remember Zuko's Redemption is like very specifically like I wouldn't Zuko's Redemption is very important, but I wouldn't call it the central axle upon which the entire show spins. Um it is the central axle of this show. Uh, I think very much and it is a long complicated machine that that just chugs along and really takes every second to drive the points that it is trying to get across as hard as possible and it works really well yeah and this is not to say that i think the zuko arc is bad i just think that this is a this is a more exemplary example because like you said it is it is the thing like zuko that it's very important for zuko's character but he's just one out of a out of an ensemble cast. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like I, like Zuko Zuko's arc is of course one of the best um, of of this show's like, I guess you can call it a contemporary like it's uh, like genre maybe. It's not like it's contemporary. It's in the same sort of circle, right? I think, yeah, I think a lot of shows like Shira can be traced back to Avatar. Maybe further with some other stuff, but Avatar is definitely the the like spark for all of this stuff, where people can look at an animated show and go, "Oh, you can make compelling and like complex character drama in a format like this, and still have it be fun." Yeah, no, exactly. Like it's it's sort of the the foundation upon which they kind of built this whole situation. Without Avatar's success, I think it is it is not quite as like there, there are a lot of shows that become foundational and important avatar without avatar you don't get adventure time you don't get steven universe you don't get any you don't get Shira. you don't get any of this stuff avatar is the is one of those things that people can point to and say look they did it we can do it too yeah and they can improve upon it and i think in a lot of ways the catcher arc is an improvement upon the ground that uh, the Zuko arc kind of laid right because there's 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 problems with Zuko's arc and of course there's problems with Catcher's arc but I think a lot of Catcher's arc is kind of an answer to the issues that Zuko's had. Zuko is I, I need to rewatch the show. Yeah, Zuko's arc has a lot of gaps and a lot of problems. Catcher's arc, the flaws in it, I feel are not necessarily gaps as so much as they are purposefully put there because Catra is very purposely a very flawed character who ultimately the show believes still deserves redemption exactly exactly and and the show does a very careful tightrope walk of trying to make sure that while they get this across they also acknowledge a lot of what she's done and of course you'll see a lot more of that once we get more into season four and she's and and season five as well when she starts really having to kind of deal with the consequences of her actions season four and season five are like the sort the they're the best seasons of this show by far um they're just so good and chief among them is because katra is extremely central to those seasons like she's always the the secondary protagonist of the show she is the second lead like that is just the truth of the show but she is she is centered more than even in in one and two in seasons three and four exactly exactly the show the show is basically a very careful uh waltz with our with our two heroines here but we will we'll we'll save 
our more detailed thoughts about Catra's Ark for when we get there. Yes. We can't we can't pick all the fruit off the tree just yet. We have to save some for later. We do. It's you know, savoring savoring your meal is uh, is an important one, but uh, it's a very it's a very good one at that. But yeah, that'll that'll about do us, I think, um, for this week. It's a long one, it's an intense one, but that's just the kind of episode that Light Spinner is. Next week, probably going to be lighter, because it's a lighter episode. It's about Bo's dads. Yeah, and everyone loves, everyone loves seeing Bo's dad, so you're going you're gonna to have a fun time with that one. I know we will. But until then, I have been one of your hosts, Nero. And I have been the other host, Jane. And we'll see you on the other side of Podcast Spondos.